welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Matt Hill, co-founder and CEO of Start9 Labs, a leading pioneer in what he calls sovereign computing. In today's world, many have become accustomed to using third-party platforms to interact online, host their data, and much else. But as the saying goes, the cloud is just someone else's computer. As a result of this, there is no true privacy, anyone can be censored, and data honeypots exist everywhere for dishonest or malicious actors to exploit. Matt and his team are determined to reverse this concerning trend by making it easy and affordable to run a personal private server, allowing any individual to take back control of their data, opt out of corporate and state surveillance, and engage in their digital lives in a manner that is private, secure, and censorship-free. Enjoy. There we go. We're recording. Matt, it's uh, good to be speaking with you again. It's been a little while. It has. It's been a year or two, actually, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the motivations uh, for setting this up today and why I wanted to speak with you more, I mean, there's there's two reasons, I two primary motivations, I suspect, and then you're, or I suspect that we may discover more as we get talking. But one is just this... Um, propensity for when people get involved in Bitcoin, you know, to taking back such a high degree of sovereignty, which is sovereignty over their money and over their wealth, it becomes kind of a, perhaps like an intoxicating phenomenon where you, once you feel that, once you can feel the kind of power of doing that, you begin to assess other areas of your life. And you, once you realize that you were so captured by the monetary system, then you look out in your other areas of your life and you think, what other areas have I relinquished sovereignty and freedom? What other areas have I been captured in? And what am I giving up in that process? And I think a lot of us start to say, oh, like I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. Now that I've kind of shown a light on what's actually going on, I'm not comfortable being captured in so many different ways. I'm not comfortable being so dependent and reliant on, on so many things. I'm not comfortable delegating so much responsibility outside of myself. And so I think that that is kind of why this... Um, this idea of sovereign computing, which we'll get into, has a lot of Bitcoiners have become receptive to it as they engage in that process. And I think, you know, part of another thing that that facilitates that is many of us have started tinkering with hardware, you know, and as, as a result of wanting to run our own nodes. And so over the last couple of years, we've all kind of done the Raspberry Pi thing where you get the Pi and you flash the OS and, you know, in a matter of minutes, you're up and running with your own node. And that's become kind of a a liberating thing in a sense, but it's also demystified, you know, how complex all this needs to be. So I think a lot of us who, who perhaps were not technical, such as myself, previously, that might have seemed off limits to us. Oh, like, it's just too technical and it's too, you know, we're never going to get it. And it's, be, and it's demystified it. And now it seems like it's a very easy thing to do, you know, to, again, and it's been seen through the lens of taking sovereignty over your money. But now that you have this, you know, your own server architecture, this one-to-one -one relationship with your, with your money and this type of uh, computing, then you start to realize like, oh, why, why can't I do this for other things? And so, and the third thing, I, I knew there was another one. The third thing is we, we existing in this world today, and I think this has become even more apparent over the last two years, where the attempts to control our movement, our communications, our banking, our media, everything has become much more overt. You know, I saw, um, and it doesn't matter who you are. We saw the president of the United States be deplatformed from Twitter. We've seen billionaire Kanye West be, you know, uh, cut off from his, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at J.P. Morgan because he said the wrong thing on Twitter. And so 
it's becoming more and more apparent the degree of control uh, that we are subject to and just how egregious and how how easy it is to be cut off from those things. And I think so all those things taken together have really brought this notion and this what you guys have been working on in sovereign computing to the fore. And I think it's a great moment to really dig into that and have a broader discussion about it, which is why I wanted to have you on today. So long-winded intro, but you know, perhaps you can um, just intro yourself a little bit and the company, and then we'll get rolling. Yeah, that definitely sets the stage. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, so for those who don't know, I, my name is Matt Hill. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Start9. Uh, Start9 just turned three years old recently. Um, and we are um, a computer company in, in the broadest sense. Um, our, we do something called sovereign computing uh, as opposed to cloud computing or personal computing. Um, this is a coin that I think, uh, a term that I think we coined. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, <laughs> I think we did. Um, and essentially what it means is uh, engaging with computers in such a way that there are no trusted third parties involved um, in, in the relationship, um, that you and your computer or set of computers um, are sort of by design and uh, in, the, in the very base, um, private uh, and secure um, and not trusting others either for access to your computers um, or <clears throat> to maintain them, um, that you are in control. Uh, in the truest sense. And, you know, this is sort of how computers started um, back in the 70s and 80s when personal computers really began to infiltrate the mainstream. Um, they were private uh, by design. Um, there, there was no, they were not networked. So your computer was strictly a um, tool for your brain. It was just something that you held privately in your home and could augment your thinking and productive capacities. And um, this was really great, obviously. And what made that computing revolution possible was um, a primarily, uh, amongst other things, a graphical operating system. This was like the primary innovation of uh, Windows, or I don't even know if it was called Windows then, but you know, Microsoft, Apple, uh, some of the IBMs as well. Um, began to make these operating systems that um, enabled a non-technical person to navigate a personal computer. And so that is what sparked the initial personal computing revolution. It's what put, put computers uh, into every home and eventually into every pocket. Um, and, then, um, and then you had this sort of second computing revolution, which introduced networking into the equation. Um, and the culmination of that second computing revolution, what began with something like, well, you know, uh, AOL, I'll say, was like the main leap into networked computers for the average person in the average home, uh, America Online. <laughs> um, there was stuff before that, but AOL was like the real homecoming of, of what has become uh, and culminated in cloud computing, what we now call cloud computing. Uh, where basically every device of yours, yes, it is still proper to call it a computer, but it is actually more accurate to think of it as a remote control for a computer, your cell phone, your laptop, your desktop. In most cases, on most days, they are actually just remote controls that are remotely operating another computer um, that we have 
you know, sort of gently referred to as the cloud, but more accurately is just someone else's computer. Uh, and in this case, it's usually um, belongs to Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, or whatever app you happen to be using at that moment on your phone. You are actually remote accessing, remote controlling um, their computer, um, which means um, which means they are in control of that of that interaction and relationship. All of the communications are intermediated, and all of the data are custodied. So the computing paradigm that humanity primarily exists in today, at least first world computing, um, is intermediated and custodied, and we sort of slid into this. This was not like some explicit choice that I think people made. Um, it was just the kind of default um, because it was obfuscated. People didn't quite realize that this was happening. Um, and it was like really convenient and it worked really, really well. So it was just the path of least resistance um, because it afforded enormous power and benefit to our personal lives and to our businesses, but, um, and it was free, <laughs> right? Like pitched as free. Mm -hmm. Um, and only now, like you mentioned over the past few years, um, is it really starting to hit home that there is no such thing as a free lunch, even when it comes to, uh, computing, uh, and using applications. Um, there is a cost. The costs are multiple and severe. Um, and we are only just now starting to scratch the surface of those costs. I can enumerate uh, exactly what they are and on what timeline, at least we at Start9 expect them to um, unfold. Uh, what's the saying that the bill comes at the end? <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've been at a drunk party of cloud computing for two decades and the bill is coming due. And I think more and more people are starting to see that the bill is coming due. Um, this is very similar to how Bitcoin came into existence as well, right? So it is no coincidence that new technologies, new products emerge at the same time as old products, technologies, systems uh, are beginning to falter or become excessively expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, some people see it before others, right? So there were people in the 90s <laughs> preparing for what eventually became Bitcoin uh, who saw it coming, but they were way too early, right? The, the problem that is fiat banking and monetary policy, um, government control over money, was not yet crumbling. And so any solution, any product or technology that purported to solve that problem was deemed as who the hell needs that? And so it didn't garner the appropriate attention or effort to build out the ecosystem and technology. But by 2008, fast forward to 2008, um, suddenly the writing's on the wall. Suddenly more and more people are aware and Satoshi being even more aware than the average and more capable than uh, the average actually put something out there to solve the problem. And the timing was perfect. It was absolutely perfect timing and was this rare once in a you know century kind of opportunity to fundamentally change that whole, that whole paradigm. Um, we actually view what's happening right now, um, not like today, but over the last few years as sort of information's 2008, 
where suddenly people are starting to realize that the existing technologies, products, and systems um, that govern information on this planet are crumbling. They are in danger that the bill is coming due. And so we didn't happen by accident. People have been building I mean, Linux has been around forever, and it's always been possible to run a personal server. It's always been really hard, but nobody even saw the reason to do it because they could just use somebody else's server, you know, and use closed source software that's hosted by a third party. No big deal. But now all of a sudden, the problem is apparent. And so the solution is interesting. And we are one of those, not the only, but we are one of, and I would argue the leader, uh, in this space, providing um, a solution to that problem. Yeah, you know, it, it just as you're saying that, it's so, by virtue of how all this got rolling and, you know, the conveniences were there and it was very low cost and we all just kind of went along for the ride. It is kind of weird to consider. I mean, think about most people have some photos on their phone that they may not be comfortable sharing with anyone other than their significant other. You know what I'm saying? Uh, or there's maybe some, some files or some financially sensitive information or whatever. And everyone has just become accustomed to and comfortable with trusting that that is being custodied and secured by someone who one is not going to peek at it. And two, not going to let anybody else peek at it or, or gain access to it. And that is such a enormous leap of faith especially in light of what we've seen, you know, the Snowden revelations and other leaks where, you know, it's been shown that all of this data is basically captured. You know, it's available to whom, to particularly, you know, the, the large surveillance organizations in the world if they want it. Now, you might be able to make the case like, well, you know, why would they want my, my, you know, silly naked photos or whatever the hell it is. But the, 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 the point is that it's all basically available. And then, of course, you have smaller scale hacks on a regular basis of, you know, address information and email and buying history. And, and, and then layered on top of that, a lot of the perhaps less sensitive stuff is sold as a matter of course. I mean, that I've heard you say before, I mean, this is basically the freemium model. That's why all this has been free up to this point is because all that data is, is sold as a profit. You are the product. And it's because you make all this data so freely available to, you, you trust it to these institutions to, to custody it and secure it for you. And basically they're selling it to the highest bidder. And then what they don't sell is often, you know, compromised in some way. We, we get that a lot. Um, this, you know, not we start nine, but like we as individuals, and I think you throughout your life as well, have heard from many people, like, I don't have anything to hide. So mm. I don't care if my texts are going through an Apple server. Like I'm not a bad guy. I don't have anything to hide. Um, and, and so here's my response to that. Okay. The, that is one one cost. And I would argue that it is one of the more minor costs uh, associated with intermediated third-party cloud computing, right? The costs are, I would argue, fivefold. So you have invasion of privacy, personal privacy. And that's the one that you just mentioned, which is like, hey, I'm not a bad guy. I just have stuff that belongs to me, financial information, photos for my significant other, you name it, right? Like it's just doesn't belong in the hands of other people. And mm -hmm. I have the right to that privacy. That's one. Number two is dragnet surveillance, right? And this, this has, again, Snowden revelations, you mentioned, like, this is becoming a thing. Um, but that also is the tinfoil hat thing, right? You'll get a lot of people in the world that are just like, oh, come on, 
like they're naive, of course. They haven't read history, of course. But there is this argument against it where it's just like, come on, you're not of interest. Nobody's surveilling you. You're just a number on a radar. You're not part of the out group that they're going to go after, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, there are valid responses to that of being like, well, you you don't realize how this goes. And, uh, you know, what is the in group today could be the out group tomorrow type of stuff. Right. Um, so you have personal privacy, you have dragnet surveillance. Um, one of the bigger ones that almost everyone can get on board with, especially now, is uh, third-party um, vulnerabilities, so hacks, right? So this idea that when you honeypot everyone's data <laughs> into a central server, similar to honeypotting everybody's money together into a single vault, that server and vault become prime targets for attack. And people have a very strong misconception of what cybersecurity really means. Um, they do not realize that at the heart of cybersecurity or security of any kind is access control, which is always by humans at the end of the day, right? There might be bots and, and automations in place, but ultimately a human being has to gain access to either the money or the data. Otherwise, it's useless. And so what you do in security is you just put layers and layers and layers of security up. And at each layer, there is one or more humans involved um, that have keys that can open doors. And so to hack something does not require any degree of sophisticated like malware or you know um, programs. And it's definitely not some hacker on the other side of the world like pounding keys faster than the good guy can pound keys and fight them. It's not like cyber jousting. The way that hacking happens is human beings are compromised. They are either tricked, blackmailed, threatened, bribed, you name it, right? Human beings are fallible and they will eventually be had. So basically the way we view... Um, servers of consequence, any server that has any meaningful amount of user data on it, either has been or will be hacked. Uh, I, Andreas at one point in the past said something like, there's only two kinds of exchanges, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. <laughs> and we say the exact same thing for any sort of uh, server farm and, and um, uh, anything that is that is housing uh, large scale consumer data, it will be hacked. And so if you're on there, even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're just benignly using that platform, suddenly your credit card information, email address, phone number, physical home address, purchase history, and all the rest is now in the hands of either individual hackers, nation state hackers, uh, corporate espionage, you name it. Um, you're just an innocent bystander who got caught in the crossfire. Uh, so that's another one. Um, and then, uh, why am I blanking on this? Man, I say this well, why, all the time. Why <laughs> oh, you're thinking? Cost. I'm sorry. Let's get to the yeah, one that's actually going to drive adoption more than the rest. Right. Um, cost, okay? And the reason I say cost, and everyone's like, what are you talking about? All this stuff is free. Well, it's been free because you've been the product, right? Mm -hmm. we, these free tiers of SaaS products are somebody... Um, you know, giving you a piece of software and then you basically handing over information about yourself and then mo monetizing it uh, out the back door, primarily through advertisement, but also through research, pot potentially to um, uh, officials as well. Um, and that is starting to dry up. And the reason that that is starting to dry up is because people are becoming increasingly aware of the practice itself, right? So as 
it becomes more um, common for people to understand data harvesting and, and you know, uh, the productization of you, they're starting to say no. They're starting to look for products that do not uh, collect data. They are also um, putting pressure on politicians to implement policy and laws that, um, you know, uh, grant, we'll call it data protection to consumers. Like most apps these days have to ask you if they can collect your data. And almost everyone I know at least says no. Um, and I'm not just talking about the cypherpunks. I mean, mm -hmm. average normies are saying no because, you know, um, they're sick of talking to their significant other about, you know, baby cribs and then seeing baby crib <laughs> advertisements on their Twitter feed. Um, right. that sounds like a silly little thing, but it is like the number one resonating, uh, event or instance that happens that people like are become aware of this practice. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying no. And so the only way that these companies, these to be honest, these giant bubbles of companies, as in like they're way overvalued because they're all based on this decade old model of dollar per user monetization. Like get as many users as possible. You don't charge them any money. You don't make money at all. There's no revenue. You just get users, users, users with this promise that someday you'll be able to monetize them by either sort of locking them in, uh, collecting their data, but ultimately, the only way that they're going to be able to monetize now that the data farming uh, revenue stream is starting to dry up is subscriptions. So uh, you're already starting to see it. We believe that it will become the story in the, within the next decade that every single piece of software, every app on your cell phone, laptop, desktop that you use is going to be a monthly subscription. You are going to be paying $5 for this, $10 for that, $20 for that. And at the end of the month, if you have 40 apps on your phone, you're not going to be able to pay rent. It's going to get extremely expensive. And the reason that it's going to get increasingly expensive is not only because they can't monetize the data, but because running a central data farm, being a service provider of information is getting more expensive because their costs are going up. They have to hire very talented cybersecurity professionals. They have to be regulatorily compliant. They have to have audits. They have to blah, 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 blah. Like the costs of being a data middleman are going up and up and up. And the revenue stream, the primary one to date, is drying up. So it's about to get really expensive to the consumer, which we think is going to be the ultimate driving force of a sovereign computing paradigm is that people are going to be looking for a way to own their computer and software as opposed to being a perpetual renter. It's the opposite of you'll own nothing and be happy. You'll own mm -hmm. everything and be miserable. <laughs> I don't um, think that's right. <laughs> no, but you'll be in, you'll be in control of your own data and you'll be you'll feel free and sovereign perhaps. But there you go. you know, you own you everything and you'll be free. Yeah. Like that, you, yeah. you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of people's attitude is just like, well, I don't have anything to hide. So, you know, why do I care? And it's, we, we're in such a perverse era, it seems that it's, it's not even that it's if you do decide that you'd like to have privacy over any aspect of your life, it's almost incriminating like that attitude. I mean, it's so inverted that it's not just, Hey, I don't have anything to hide. It's like, Oh, well, what do you have to hide? Oh, you don't want your data being stored on a Google server? You don't want it, you know, being swept up in Dragnet? What are you up to that's so, you know, mysterious that you don't want to, you know, share with the world? I mean, that's the extent to which our, you know, collective thinking seems to be 
or at least public, you know, you know, broadly speaking, public speaking or public perception of, of the, the idea of privacy has gone. And, you know, I, I, cause, and I, that's kind of a lead into your deeper motivations that we touched on right before we hit record here, because I know, well, part of your story is seeing the Ron Paul revolution in 2012, right? And I, I was there with you, right? I was like, wow, like this guy's speaking sensibly, you know, for once someone is, you know, just speaking sensibly and, and saying the truth. And you can tell he's genuine and honest and wow, look at all this support. I mean, he's, he's rallied so a huge portion of the younger generation. And then you saw the complete dismissal, the complete blackout that he was treated with in the media to, to discredit, you know, the, the force of his, uh, you know, the enthusiasm behind him and to, you know, ho however much that really was, we'll never know, but it certainly seemed to be garnering a lot more enthusiasm than the other candidates at the time. Right. And so this speaks to, you know, the, you know, the, the corruption perhaps of the media and the political apparatus and, you know, all the people who have a vested interest in the status quo. And when you saw that you were disheartened, right. I think you even said you were somewhat depressed for a while because like, wow, how, how does this get turned around? If, 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 you know, someone speaking sensible, you know, sensibly and the truth with so much support is so easily swept aside. And then Bitcoin comes on the scene and the case was the same for myself as well. I didn't see how the problems of the world could be rectified. And then Bitcoin comes on the scene. I'm like, oh, this is how it can be rectified. You know, this is a, this is a, a, a force that can't be stopped. This can really help fix a lot of the things that I had previously identified as, as unresolvable. Um, and so my question for you is with that as a backdrop, what was the motivation for you in, in focusing you know, all your efforts on this particular aspect of the broader problem that we face, you know, in terms of sovereign computing and privacy and that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, man, Ron Paul, that was really a time. Um, that was my rabbit hole. You know, I mm. was raised, uh, in a default liberal household. Politics was never discussed. It was just sort of like, you know, the default stance and I never gave it two thoughts and things are never, good. Just, you know, just don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. School, you know, middle school, high school, uh, do not offer economic literacy, financial literacy, political literacy. It's, it's just memorize mm -hmm. your tadpole phases and here's some math. And, <laughs> um, I hated school. I was really good at it, but I hated it. Um, yeah. and then I went to, uh, UPenn for college, uh, Ivy league, total liberal, you know, haven. Um, I really hated it there and uh, I didn't know why <laughs> I just didn't fit in. And, um, and again, didn't really learn much about anything. Uh, you know, I took a bunch of electives. I, I studied philosophy. I, you know, I, I, I let my brain do what it needed to do to feel satiated. Yeah. Um, yeah. but but I didn't feel like I was very practicable, like I was learning anything that was going to help me in the, you know, in the world. Um, and then my education really began after college when I started doing my own reading of just like letting, for the first time in my life, letting my hunger for information and knowledge guide the process rather than following some, you know, um, imposed curriculum. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I found a few different things, right? So first I kind of found, I found Ron Paul. Um, and this was, you know, I graduated college in 2008 and over the following years started to get more interested in politics, started to get more interested in economics, uh, ultimately found Ron Paul and was just like full on board. I mean, I was, I was campaigning in 2012. Um, and I saw it as like the answer, you know, political action. It was like, Oh my God, here's a libertarian 
running as a Republican because of strategy purposes for, you know, for strategic purposes. And, um, he's packing stadiums full of college kids and they're screaming and he's right about everything that he's saying. And, you know, and, and I just thought that that could work. And it was so thoroughly and really simply put down that, like you said, I just sort of fell into a, a stupor and was like, uh, how do you, how do you beat that? That thing is so big and evil and monstrous and, and has so much inertia that you, you, there's really no way to fight against it. Um, and then I discovered two things simultaneously. One was Ayn Rand and the second was Bitcoin. And the third was programming. I taught myself how to code all at the same time. <laughs> so all three of those things were happening nice. in a fury, <laughs> fury of knowledge acquisition over the course of about two years. And I read everything, everything that Ayn Rand ever wrote and everything that Ron Paul wrote, right? So I was just consuming this like, you know, uh, objectivist uh, philosophy, libertarian, um, you know, political ideology. Bitcoin uh, gave me my financial and economic literacy, uh, you know, which led to all sorts of other readings. Um, and then I was learning how to code. And suddenly this puzzle started to make sense. I was like, okay, Ayn Rand advocates for striking as really the only means of defeating the essence of evil, right? Like that was the, the theme of Atlas Shrugged, was the mind on strike. What happens when the most productive, intelligent members of society stop giving their productive energy to that society as a stance against their own sort of, you know, uh, destruction as in, mm -hmm. you know, the non-productive are forcing the productive to work and then sacrifice themselves for, you know, everyone else. Well, what happens if those people just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And they leave sort of society to its fate. They allow it to just go without them. What would happen? And the answer is that gradually the lights turn off, right? Gradually the thing just atrophies and dies. Um, at which point the productive members and of society can sort of come back and pick up the pieces, right? It's this cycle of history where you build a glorious society and then the looters come in and start, you know, picking it to the bone and then it falls down and then it, you know, the cycle reboots. I believe Bitcoin has a similar saying, um, you know, weak men create hard times, hard crimes create strong men, strong men create great times. Um, same mm -hmm. cycle. So her idea was strike, remove your productive energy and value from the system as a means of starving it out. Okay. To expedite the process of collapse, really to just speed it up so that it doesn't have to drag on in torture for decades on end. Then you had Bitcoin, which was a you know, from one perspective, Bitcoin's a lot of things, but from one perspective, Bitcoin is a means of opting out of the existing financial system and fiat monetary paradigm, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's opting out. That's what it is. You are going on strike. You're essentially saying, this thing is corrupt and sick. I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to participate in it to the best of my ability, right? You still have to eat, mm -hmm. you still have to do things. So it's, it's a bit of a process, but ultimately mm -hmm. the goal is to just starve it out, to just leave the fiat money to its to itself and let the inflation take over and run with it. And in the meantime, you hope to get as many people out as possible. Um, but ultimately, that's what it is. It's striking against the thing that is sick and needs to die. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was learning how to code and was like, well, this is wonderful. First of all, like that was my, I'm obsessive. I'm something of a, like, I have an obsessive kind of like uh, 
personality. Like I can hyper focus for for days and days and weeks and weeks on end uh, with seemingly no loss of energy. And coding has been like the number one thing for me. It's like a shot of adrenaline. It's like the most creative, exciting process uh, I can I can do. Like when I'm tunneled on a, on a code base, I, everything else vanishes. I stop eating. I stop drinking. I stop, it's just like it's it's exciting. And do you dangerous. crash at some point or? Oh, eventually, sure, that? yeah. But I found that as long as I sleep exercise and eat well, I actually don't ever crash. I can go right. on these ex- infinite binges of work and coding as long as I nail those three things, uh, you know, in a very disciplined way, um, mm-hmm. sleep, eat, exercise. <laughs> and if I do that, I can just work all day. Um, so, so yeah, this all was just like a, a tornado of a time for me and ultimately came out feeling like a fairly competent technologist, um, I can, I can hack. I'm not a formally trained CS, you know, degree person. Uh, I don't actually understand computers all the way down to, you know, the NAND gates and bits and bytes. I am an application developer. I can build apps, right? So I operate like up here in the computing stack. And, um, as I got to know more and more people in this world who operated down here, I was like, okay, you know, you can't do it yourself. You got to find some partners. And I ultimately teamed up with a few really brilliant, wonderful people, um, you know, partners and great friends of mine who compliment me from a technology and strategy perspective. And we sought to do something uh, meaningful. And we didn't know exactly what we were going to do. This was a team that I had put together at Salt. Um, Salt Lending was a pioneer of the um, crypto-backed loan product, right? It's similar mm-hmm. to BlockFi and Celsius and Nexo and, and all the rest of them. Um, and, you know, at the time, and even now, it sounds like a decent idea at face value, right? Like somebody should be able to put up a, an asset in order to obtain a loan and then pay it back. And because it's like awesome collateral and can be shaved off in little bits rather than like wholesale, like a house, um, it actually can function as really good collateral. And so we thought it was an interesting idea and we set out to build like the ultimate, you know, collateral based lending platform for Bitcoin. Um, and we were doing it right. Like we were going to do, you know, multi-sig where the borrower had a key to the funds and they could see the funds on chain. There was no rehypothecation. There was no like using deposits to gamble out the back door. Um, you know, we were really trying to do it right. And we were really trying to do it Bitcoin only too. We didn't see any real value in taking these ultra volatile kind of flash in the pan, unviable coins and networks as collateral, because they just quite frankly, weren't good collateral compared to Bitcoin. But the company had other ideas, right? Salt and its leadership um, had a very different idea of where that company was going to go. They were fixated on bringing value to the token, the salt token, Mm. which they had used to bootstrap the company financially in a sale. Um, they were intent on going the full shitcoin route. They were intent on, on going the rehypothecation route. And so we walked, we were, me and the engineering team were just like, well, that's not going to help the world. It doesn't sound exciting. It sounds really boring and it's going to implode at some point. So see ya. And we walked and eventually it did. Um, salt in the last, I think two weeks has now halted withdrawals, blaming the FTX collapse and they're, oh, they're still operating. I haven't heard salt? anything about oh, yeah, them. Yeah, no, they, they kept going. We built wow a hell of a platform. Uh, technologically <laughs> speaking, Salt had a solid foundation. It was everything else that was suffering over there. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's, I think it might be over now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that, what that announcement means, but I think it might mean, uh, not good. Not good. <laughs> um, but anyway, we've been out of there for a long time. We never looked back. And when we left, mm. um, we set out to do something real and right, um, on a, in a principled way, um, that we could feel good about every day, every night. Um, and we did, we ultimately found it. And the way that start nine came about, um, in short, like there was a lot of discussions and events that led up to this, but in short, um, it's, was me trying to set up a, a lightning node back when lightning was a little bit earlier on. So this was, mm. you know, I was trying to set up an LND node in 2019 and, um, I'm again, fairly technical person. I'm competent to do this type of stuff. And I, I like got in there and was just like, like I, I had to sort of sit back and be like, oh man, this is going to take this is going to take a while. You know, I was going to like get ready for this. And I, that was fine. I don't mind that. But I also at that same moment was just like, how is this ever going to work? How is lightning ever going to work? Because by nature, it's hot and non-custodial, right? Like you, lightning is not like Bitcoin. Running your own node in Bitcoin is really important, but it's not as important as running your own node in lightning, right? Because the funds are on the node. Whereas with Bitcoin, you're using it for verification and mm -hmm. network access purposes. With Lightning, you're using it to hold funds. And so we were like, people got to run their own Lightning nodes, but running your own Lightning node is basically impossible. Sounds like, sounds like a problem. Sounds like we could solve that problem and make it a lot easier. And so that's what we set out to do. Was the initial seed of what became Start9 was let's make it really easy for people to run a lightning node. Inherent in that was a Bitcoin node because you can't run a lightning node without a Bitcoin node, or at least you shouldn't. Um, and so we were like, okay, so a Bitcoin and lightning node. As we started thinking about this and solving it, we realized that if we could solve this for Bitcoin and lightning, that if we could make a plug and play hardware experience for Bitcoin and lightning to run a Bitcoin and lightning node, that we would inherently be solving a much larger problem, at least in part, which is self-hosting anything at all, whether it's Bitcoin or Lightning related or not, password management, text messaging, data storage, you name it. The same technologies required to make a non-technical person run a Bitcoin and Lightning node were the same to run anything else with the proper approach. We had to build it abstractly and generalized as opposed to specific for Bitcoin and Lightning, but there was enough overlap that we got interested in this. My knowledge of how the world works based off of all the reading I had done in the prior years and my knowledge of myself and the team, I came to the conclusion personally that not only could we do this, not only could we build, uh, quite frankly, an operating system, that enables a non-technical person to self-host anything they want competently and in perpetuity, um, but that it would be a massive moment in human history, that this would actually be deeply meaningful um, to, to history, that if we could put information back in the control of the individual, essentially push control over information to the edges of the network, it would be... Um, it would be a, a revolution of the way human societies function, um, as opposed to central parties controlling every information on behalf of everyone else, you would have independent sovereign individuals, um, participating voluntarily in, in a, um, in a free society. And so it just kind of hit on all 
fronts. I know that was that was long winded, but um, yeah, no, it, it was good. And you know, the the point about basically starving whatever you disagree with, right? Whether it's an enemy or just you know some anything, you know, you you feed in a, in a market economy where anything regarding how you devote your attention, be it you know your economic resources or otherwise, you give life to the things that you you feed, right? That you give those resources to. And I mean, one, I'm so grateful that now we have something in Bitcoin where, because these monetary revolutions, right? The pitchforks moment when the, the, the authority, the, the dominant power kind of abused their position and everyone just got tired of it. And they all, you know, you had have the revolutionary moment. Uh, that was just history, right? That's just how it goes. There was no way of really opting out of that cycle. And now we have a, a means of, opting out of participating in, in that system that is peaceful, right? And this is why, of course, in Bitcoin land, we always talk about this peaceful revolution. And I think it's, it's so much more effective than fighting anyone or anything, you know, putting, putting so much more on the line when you directly fight something versus just saying, look, I don't want to participate in this. I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't want to amplify your message or your power. I just... You know, I want to go and do my own thing. And Bitcoin allows you to do that in the most consequential way ever, which is with regards to money, because money, of course, is the source of a power in the world. Um, and the reason why I ask you that question about your motivations here, because information is, a, is probably a very close second, right? In terms of like, well, to whom do you give your information? Like, what is the reason why you'd rather pull that information back to the individual. And we covered some of that, right? Because of all the kind of egregious things that happen when we do delegate our information to these third parties and how they abuse us and how they mishandle it and how it gets accessed by others and all the harm that can come to us from doing that. Um, and what do you think are the consequences socially, culturally, psychologically? And, you know, I, I think we have to appreciate that this is going to be a slow process because people are so used to delegating all these things to other people that it's going to take some time to, to replace the locus of responsibility for these things within, you know, at the individual level. But what do you think are the, we talk about the, the social, cultural, economic implications of Bitcoin all the time. What do you think are the implications of in those areas and perhaps others, if you haven't have, have them in mind of, information coming back under the control of the individual like what do, how does the world change and what does it look like as a result great question um so first real quick you know you mentioned money and information as being two different kind of uh battlegrounds so to speak so what what bitcoin did right was it made money information that's what that was what sort of it did is it took money out mm -hmm. of the physical world and it made it digital. Um, and this required, of course, this whole consensus mechanism and, you know, proof of work to, to make viable, but it turned money into information. And I think that a lot of people would, would agree that even prior to Bitcoin, the world was largely moving towards, uh, an information style of warfare that battles were being fought for control over information. Whoever controlled the flow of information, what was heard, what wasn't heard was the person who was ruling the world. Aside from, and this was interesting that they were separate, money. Money controlled who controlled the information. So whoever mm. had the money controlled the people who controlled the information, and then, so therefore they were ruling sort of in secret. But now when money becomes information, information is pretty much the entire battleground, other than 
um, guns and tanks, other than physical violence, information um, is sort of where the war is going to be fought, especially as more and more fiat currencies move into the information uh, sphere as well. So really, this is this is it now, right? Bitcoin made the information war come home. It made it like um, the the focal point of of battle, um, and and that's where we're that's where we're fighting, and that's where you're fighting too, right? You mm -hmm. are, you know, you are distributing information, um, and so we want to make sure that you don't get silenced. Our goal is to make sure that that information uh, is as widely heard as possible through products and technologies. Um, so what happens if we win and how long might that take? Well, I agree with you. This is not an overnight thing. Um, I have a different perspective than many uh, Bitcoiners in terms of timelines. Um, you know, we are going to have these moments of triumph, these battles that we win. Um, and uh, we have had some, right? Bitcoin has come a long way and is now kind of a grown up technology. It's, you know, it's mature, it's robust, it can defend itself. Um, it has a huge uh, network effect that is, at this point, would be almost impossible to undermine or stop, I think. Um, but we are up against uh, a determined, albeit somewhat unfocused enemy, um, and a ton of inertia, right? Just the inertia of, of the past century is behind, uh, not behind Bitcoin, it is behind the fiat monetary system. So I think, similar to um, you know other large-scale societal revolutions in the past, that it's going to require two generations of children. That's sort of my baseline thinking, is because I write off a majority of the population today as lost cause, as in it's not their world anymore, right? I'm not sitting here telling them that they suck. It's just not their world anymore. The future does not belong to them anymore. The past did. And the future does not. The future belongs to my children and their children and their children. And so they're the ones that we need to be reaching, right? We do a lot of outreach um, in Bitcoin and, and elsewhere, of course, to like kind of try to convince the adult population of this. And it's just not going to happen. Uh, some will get on board, but many are so, I think what Morpheus in the Matrix is like so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to defend it mm -hmm. irrationally. They will fight, the cognitive dissonance will be overwhelming and they will fight with their teeth to defend their own enslavers. Um, and so we can't help them. It's not that we can't try and it's not that we won't welcome them with open arms, but that shouldn't be where the focus is. Um, I think it's going to require two generations of children, both from a philosophic education and technological adoption standpoint. Like we have to onboard them to the future. And that's why we support um, and sponsor the uh, El Salvador experience, uh, experiment with the um, Mi Primera Bitcoin and Ibex Mercado and what they're doing with the uh, high schoolers over there with that diploma program that they have where they're trying to educate you know, teenagers um, how to use Bitcoin and what Bitcoin is and why it matters. Um, and we will continue to support any program that uh, targets children um, for educational and technological adoption purposes. And um, so what it looks like, I think, is 60 years, give or take, um, 60, 70 years before we will be able to declare victory if 
we win, <laughs> which is not determined. Um, if we, if the right people are not fighting over the next couple of decades, it's very possible that we will enter one of the mo more prolonged, um, horrific periods of human history. I think we, it is very possible that the next thousand years will be defined by um, the Orwellian boot on the face existence of human history. I also think it is uh, possible, and I think it is more probable that the next thousand years will be defined by um, the greatest period of individual sovereignty and human exploration that the species has ever seen. Um, like we're going to the stars, you know, and we're going into virtual reality too. Like we're we're going to penetrate worlds, whole new worlds <laughs> as a species, um, virtual and real, and and really that requires, that will not happen without a um, society that values individual rights and a society where individuals can protect their own rights without having to delegate responsibility for that protection to things like uh, governments. Um, Bitcoin gives individuals a way to protect their wealth without um, somebody else without having to empower another to protect it for them. And I think, you know, this is what 2A does for physical protection as well. But we have no idea what's coming down the pipeline here for technology purposes. Like it is a fascinating time to be alive right now. I mean, we have, you know, I, I mentioned space exploration and virtual reality, but medical technology, artificial intelligence, um, physical weaponry, like the innovations that are taking place on multiple fronts right now are simply outrageous. Like I can't even imagine what the world is going to look like in 20 years. Mm. And I know that if the money is in the right hands, right? That as long as centralized corrupt entities are not the ones controlling the money, I think the things that get built will be wonderful achievements of technology and products that will empower individuals to you know, survive and thrive uh, on their own. If the money is under the control of the incumbents, then the technologies and things that get built will be used exactly for the opposite. They will be used to oppress the individual um, for the empowerment of the state, of the party. And um, so that is our battle. That is my battle. Um, I believe it is the battle of many in this space, is to ensure that Bitcoin um, succeeds and that we are building things with our newfound, uh, resources that empower individuals, right? So the start nine, me and my partners would not be able to do what we are doing right now, realistically, if it wasn't for Bitcoin, not only because Bitcoin provided the, the, the way it showed, it showed people that decentralized, uh, systems are possible and scalable, but it also afforded us the, the resources, like literally the monetary resources to pursue something that otherwise might not get funded or be profitable, mm -hmm. right? Like we sell a product, we are not profitable. Um, we are lucky enough to have partners and to ourselves have been in this space long enough to be able to, you know, survive this infancy 
uh, of, you know, being starved for resources, financial resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there, but you know, one of the things that when you were speaking that, and I always think about this and how awesome it's going to be, but you know, you and I are a product of what our example is basically waking up as it were seeing, thinking that we were perceiving the problems of the world. I'm sure we got many things wrong, but maybe we got some things right in our perception and not having an obvious available solution, right? So maybe you go down the gold, the libertarian, the like you, you, you're grasping at straws for a way to, you know, even make yourself comfortable that the, you're, this is a circumstance you're in and try to give yourself like, you know, uh, convince yourself that there's something you can do about it when perhaps up until Bitcoin, perhaps there wasn't really anything broad, broad scale. You could certainly affect change in your own life. And I don't want to, you know, suggest that that's not a worthwhile approach in itself, but how cool will it be when, you know, you're 14, 16, whatever you're old kind of wakes up to things and they start trying to understand the world. And they're like, man, like, well, why is this all happening? And Bitcoin's already right there, you know, and these solutions are already right there and, and increase like less and less difficult to find. I mean, how, how uplifting, how invigorating, how motivating will that be when they don't have to go through the period of, of hopelessness and nihilism being like, oh, this is all going to hell. They can just skip that right away and go right to, ah, viable solutions are being developed. That's where I'm, I'm placing my energy. I mean, we talk about long timelines here, right? And I agree, you know, it's, we should be conservative with how quickly we think, we think these issues can be resolved. But stuff like that makes me think like, well, you never know. Like if, 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 if enough of that kind of stuff happens, and as you said, if enough young people are being educated and informed about this stuff, you know, maybe, um, maybe it can happen sooner than we think. And maybe, you know, it'll happen soon enough that we can avoid some of the, the potential pitfalls of it stretching out, long, you know, longer. Because, you know, every day that, this will sound extreme to some, but every day that, that goes by where, uh, you know, we are under the yoke in various ways of entities outside of ourselves, we're stolen from, not just in our economic capacity, not just our time, not just our information, but we're stolen from on a, on a deeper level as well and not accessing, not, not fully accessing or expressing what it means to be human or, or at least not engaging in that, you know, discovery, trying to figure out what that can be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's sad in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think all of history is filled with sadness. Uh, there's these little glimpses of, of glory and hope, but you know, I feel very lucky in a lot of ways to have been born where I was born in the time I was born in. And mm -hmm. not only because by comparative standards, you know, even today's poor, uh, I shouldn't say poor, but today's lower middle class are better off than wealthy were hundreds of years ago. Um, but I also feel very lucky to be born in this time because of this massive revolution that's taking place. Like we are defining the future right now. And we have that opportunity in part because of the wealth and society that we were born into. What we're trying to do is not let what made that possible die, right? It was this blip on the radar of human history where a group of humans found a new land and said, you know what, let's try to do individual rights. <laughs> like, let's try that. It's like, it was the only partial experiment of that ever. I mean, I think there was a couple others, like you can argue that maybe ancient Greece had some degree of respect for the individual. And, you know, there's, but like the, the United States of America, 1776 was the, was the first time really 
that it was codified into a nation state, that the individual has inalienable natural rights, and that the purpose of the state is to defend the rights of the individual. It was essentially a libertarian nation, even mm-hmm. though we didn't really know that at the time or now for sure. But, um, but you know, look, with, with that in mind, um, that was a, supposed to be a side note. Remind me of the core of the question that you just asked, because <laughs> I have a whole thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what I was saying is like, how, how amazing will it be that, you know, when young people kind of emerge with that, with all those solutions available and how that will change how they go out and engage the world, you know, how they'll be able to skip over the nihilistic phase and how how they'll be able to just engage in, in solutions. And, uh, there was probably another part to it now that I'm forgetting, but there's, there's a part I'll add on. And that, and that was, you know, we, we talk about, it's, it's difficult in this day and age to not characterize the world in an us versus them sort of thing. Cause you think, you know, I'm seeing things clearly I'm on the side of the good and look at all this garbage out there. That's trying to impede that or trying to control me or trying to oppress me in some way. And, and this is why I think the, the philosophy of just opting out or, or, you know, not feeding the things that you don't want to see, because I I almost see a lot of the state that we are in and all throughout history, as you were just referring to is like, is it that, you know, the forces of evil are just more powerful or is it that we just willingly delegate and give away our power? And then the, the people most prone or most incentivized to take it end up doing so. And, and definitionally, when we give away power, when we empower other people with our money, with our information, with what, whatever else, the imbalance of power just gets exaggerated. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seems like we are kind of engaging a lesser aspect of ourselves in giving away that power and giving away that responsibility. And the people that take advantage of it are, are engaging a lesser aspect of themselves by being enticed by that, by saying, Oh yeah, I want to take advantage of that. And so it's like, we're both engaging in the same thing, which is we're both not engaging the higher aspects of ourselves. We're both kind of letting ourselves away with someone on the latter. It might be greed and lust for power on the former. It might be laziness and apathy and convenience, but we're both kind of just engaging what I think most of us would call like, uh, what's the word is not, is it unvirtuous or like a behavior that's lacking virtue? Yeah. And I, so I, I'm always careful to characterize it as us versus them. I think it's us versus us. And the reason I, part of the, the question I asked you before is like, it was kind of speculating what happens when we take back all of that responsibility, when, when that locus of control comes back into the individual, because I think by default, it means we're not empowering other people outside of ourselves as much. And that means there's not as much enticement to greed. That must, there's not as much enticement to power. It's not as you it's not as available for people to take for themselves. And I think that has a very profound effect on the kind of structure and architecture of society and culture that we end up seeing. You know, it's not that like less evil is in the world. It's just that we, we've changed the incentive structure such that, you know, we're hopefully incentivizing ourselves to engage the better aspects of ourselves, more virtuous behavior, let's say. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and now I remember my my statement about sort of the the prosperity of the world that we were born into. Why that was a preface um, is because it was I was meaning to follow it up with this idea that like the cost of living is more now than it was forty years ago in many respects, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Fifty years ago, where the cost to say buy a home may have been n number of months of income, and now it's 
I don't remember the exact numbers, but three or four times that amount, I think, right? So like the cost of owning a home has skyrocketed. And when you juxtapose that against the augmented productive capacity of society, so the, the, the sort of capital investments that have been made, right? The, the knowledge and technological capital that we possess today, when I say we, I just mean humanity, is is orders of magnitude higher than it was 50, 60 years ago, right? When you invent a new machine that makes the productive energy of one man become that of 10, the cost of living should drop by one tenth, right? Like it should, mm-hmm. it, that's what technology does is it makes the productive output of any given person, it's leverage on productive output. And so things should get cheaper. You should see forever falling prices for things. And we're not seeing that despite the fact that technology and tools have skyrocketed over the last few decades, right? Like think about how much more a person can get done in a day today than they could have gotten done 40 years ago. I mean, 40 years ago, say a hundred years ago, just to really drive the point home, Mm. you had humans that would spend their entire day going to get groceries. <laughs> that was like right. that was the whole day was like we're going to go pick some things out on the farm, we're going to go over here, we're going to go over here and it's like now you're expected to cram that in on your break, you know? Or and it's so just a click of a button, that, right? Uber Eats or something like that. Exactly. I mean, it's 2 seconds. So, so what that should have resulted in is an enormous amount of more free time and lower cost of living, but it didn't. And so what that means is where is all that value going? Right? Where is the the, the great innovators who are bringing new products to the world and making giving you leverage on your productive capacity, where's all that wealth going? You're producing 10 times more than you used to, but it's not going into your pocket. Mm-hmm. Control over the monetary system has resulted in a paradigm where you just are working harder and harder and harder using better and better tools, but all the excess production is going into the coffers of a very select few people who control the money supply. So- mm-hmm. Twofold. I feel very lucky to have been born in the time that I was born in, but I'm also looking at this as like, we've been tricked. Like, it should be really cheap, right? Like, so I have argued and have not run the numbers. I do hope someday to be able to, or hope that somebody else will pick up the torch and actually run with this a little bit. But I think, just based on a hunch and kind of my general awareness of, history and where we're at in history and what's been done over the last few decades, I think that the cost of living in the United States of America, and I'll use dollars simply because that's the way everybody still thinks, um, I think that all in, a person should be able to maintain a comfortable middle class lifestyle in the United States of America, meaning they're, they own their own home, they, they own a car, they work a very uh, you know, reasonable number of hours per week and whatever their career is, et cetera. I think that someone should be able to sustain themselves for somewhere around the range of a thousand dollars a month. I made that mm-hmm. up. Okay. But I well, think if you go back to the fifties and sixties, I mean, that's kind of consistent, right? You see that picture yeah. with the house and the car and all that kind of stuff. And it, you know, it's some, something around that. Right. But also they were making far less per hour. What I'm saying is that your wage should be the same. Mm -hmm. I I believe that the productive capacity of the human species is so far beyond where it was in the 1950s that the cost of living should be the same in terms of dollars, but salaries should be eight times what they used to be, Mm -hmm. right? Like people should be wealthy 
for doing normal jobs. I mean that. Like, I know that's kind of a, a it's almost a um, blasphemous thing to say. Um, and I'm not talking about like UBI and, and right, communism. Right. I'm just talking about the reality of the productive capacity of man. I'm saying mm-hmm. that given the tools and technologies that we have available today, it seems reasonable to me that a person should be able to work three hours a week and sustain themselves. Like that's how much the money I make, the amount of production that I can do in that time, that's how far it should go. And you know who I have to thank for that? All the geniuses and industrial giants who came before me that made iPhones (laughs) and allowed me to, in three hours of work, do more than a human used to be able to do in 40 hours of work. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that doesn't exist is because that money is being artificially hoarded and controlled by a ruling elite class. And what Bitcoin does is it it changes this game. It now puts money back into the hands of people. Money becomes a free market commodity. And so there won't you won't be able to um, distort the the economy the way that it has been distorted intentionally for the last few decades. So I think what Bitcoin is going to do is usher in an era of deflation. <laughs> And I I shouldn't say deflation, an era of lowering costs of living that is going to shock everyone. I mean, I think it's even going to blow away Bitcoiners uh, to the point where our thesis, mine, I should say, is that at some point, I believe a human being will be able to, if they so choose, opt in to a data sharing program where once I'm in control of my data completely, right? So everything about me, my likes, my dislikes, my buying preferences, my phone number, my email, all the things that are being collected against my will in many cases by these third-party service providers, let's say I'm in control of all that again. I'm in control of my identity and Mm -hmm. all my data. Well, they've already acknowledged that it's valuable because they're collecting it in order to sell it to advertisers, right? So if I'm in control of that data, <laughs> by, by, simply by virtue of being a living, breathing, thinking consumer, I am of value to any producer who wants to reach me and sell something to me. So in theory, I should be able to sell that information about myself <laughs> to the grid, even anonymously, even as just consumer A, right? I, don't, I can feed the grid with data. And in fact, imagine how valuable it would be if, say, in the future, there were sensors that were incredibly advanced compared to what they are now, as in like heart rate monitors and blood sugar monitors and brainwave trackers. And I could literally, and they were discreet enough that I could walk around with these things on. Okay. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm just loading up my body with sensors, I'm gathering information about myself. And Mixed with, so adequate numbers of sensors worn 24-7, 365, mixed with big data artificial intelligence, aggregated across entire populations, would produce information about humans and the human body that will blow medical science out of the water, right? Like, mm-hmm. for instance, my favorite futuristic app, and I know I'm going off on one here, but this is something that I've <laughs> bottled up for a while. My, yeah, go for my it. favorite technology that does not exist is what I have tentatively called referred to as correlate. And what it does is it draws correlations, period. 
That's all it does. It doesn't draw conclusions. It just draws correlations that you and all your doctors and scientists would never, ever be able to draw. It requires massive data and artificial intelligence such that, for example, I'm just wearing sensors all over my body. And I'm just going about my life, okay? And I'm eating a carrot, and then I'm going for a run, and I'm doing all this and this. And I wake up one morning, and I feel like crap. I have no idea why, right? You wake up one day, and you're just, you got a ton of energy, and the next day, you don't have a ton of energy. Do you know why? Do you have any idea why? Like, I know people who obsess over nutrition, who obsess over lifestyle changes and dietary restrictions and stuff like that. And you know what? They're all full of shit. That's why diets are fads, is because there's no science behind any of it. Everyone is just like... I shouldn't say behind any of it. We've been able to like grope at a couple correlations of like, oh, you should probably eat less poison. That might make you feel better. So we mm -hmm. can draw these like dumb, obvious conclusions about certain diets and lifestyle habits, but we really don't know shit. We don't have any idea how all of this works, uh, and especially the brain. And so what what I'm describing, what it could do is over enough time, it could say, hey, I found a correlation. Every time you have felt like this, every time your blood sugar has spiked and caused you to feel this emotion or whatever, three days earlier, you've eaten corn on the cob. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, I never would have told my doctor that. Like, it would never would have occurred to me that eating mm -hmm. this food, that one week later, every single time I feel or experience this uh, emotion or sickness, but only if three days after I ate that food, I got less than six hours sleep. Just like mind-blowing conclusions, correlations that you could draw about yourself mm -hmm. if you were just wearing every sensor under the sun and feeding all of that data to a very powerful AI. I consider this to be like very doable within the next decade or two. Like this seems like a very doable thing. The problem is, and this is where I get up and fight every morning, the problem is, is that any product like that that's invented today, if you were walking around with all those sensors, guess where all that data is going? Mm -hmm. Every last drop of data about you is all going to be fed to whoever made the ring that you're wearing to track your pulse or whoever made the you know, brain chip that you're wearing to track your, your brain waves. That's all just going to the grid. You're basically tracking data about yourself, giving it away for free, so that you might then let them tell you something about you. I want this to be owned by me. I want all of these things to track everything about me and be served up on a private network. Then if I want, I can sell that data to the grid. Okay. And it would be extremely valuable because everything about me would be of interest to everything about everyone else. And eventually we would understand how humans work, how the environment works, how everything works, um, because we could sell this data and aggregate it. And I think bringing full circle here all the way back to my first point is that that data would be valuable enough to sustain you. I think that you could create a form of UBI, not government-issued communist shit, but a form of society where the data I produce just by being a living, breathing human being and adding that data to the grid might provide me with enough income to survive. I won't be rich, but it'll be enough to eat and house myself. Then any work I do on the side is just my own ambition and how you know much I want to succeed and be wealthy. But I think we can produce a basic level of income simply by giving people control over their data 
and then enabling them to sell it to the grid in exchange for Bitcoin. And we're Let's many, many years away from this. Sure, sure. Let's pull on this thread a little bit before we uh, move on. But as you're saying that, two things pop up. One, I understand what you're saying. And like someone else would value that data sufficiently that, you know, they'd, they'd pay you enough for it and everything would be sufficiently um, cheap and deflation will have taken hold and, you know, abundance is basically reigning, that that little amount that you would get for your data would be sufficient to cover the, the cost of living. I feel like at some point in the value, I mean, so let's assume that's true. Maybe that means that it's not a necessity to provide value somewhere, right? Because as you said, like you can then, you know, engage in work to have more income or to, to provide value. And I, I, I mean, one, I'm, I wonder if that's true. Like it feels like at somewhere along the chain, you would have to provide value to be, to have your data be valuable, but that's only kind of in the sense of, someone who wants to maybe sell you something. It's, it's not really in the sense of, you know, someone with a lot more resources wanting your data to contribute to insights that are valuable to them. Cause in that case, you know, the, the data that's being paid to you or, or the money that's being paid to you for your data is not necessarily predicated on your behavior. It's just, um, or future behavior. It's just, it's, it's taking data from you to go towards insights for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, we can't really know the answer to that. So my, the, the other thing that popped up was, is that dystopian? If, if, if everyone can kind of, well, there's two points. One is that dystopian. If you can, if you can live just by virtue of, of selling your data, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing that you don't necessarily have, have to work? Um, yeah. So it, it, is that good or bad? Well, answer that one first and I'll, I'll hit the other one next. Do you yeah, think it's good or uh, bad? Well, that's where this gets really interesting is, is it's ultimately, uh, it comes down, there's a moral aspect to this. Okay. And a lot of people take a baseline stance that, um, if you do not work, in other words, if you do not, um, deliver productive energy to society, then you are not deserving of life. Right. And, I know where that comes from. In fact, I like most of the people who say that. <laughs> but if you say it as bluntly as I just said it, it doesn't quite sound right, does it? It sounds mm -hmm. like we're all servants. It sounds like we're born to serve, right? Velardo <laughs> Harris. Uh, like that we, we have to serve each other in order to be morally um, deserving of sustenance. And I think that that morality, one, is a bit twisted and falls, and I could bring up Ayn Rand and get into the whole altruist morality and how that has you know, caused, in my opinion, many of the problems the world has today. But even more simply, I think that that has just come about because it used to be true. I think that in the past, right, that there, there was no alternative that like, the world needed things like mm. society. You are part of an, a larger organism. Yes, you're an individual, but you live in a society and not that you have a duty, but it's just a value for value thing. Like nobody has the obligation to take care of you. Just like you don't have the obligation to serve them, but if you serve them, they'll give you money. It's a voluntary engagement. And until 
very modern history, every single person needed to work because that was what society needed. As in like there was, there was no, society was not operating at capacity. Every new human that was born, it was like, oh, we got a job for you. <laughs> like, man, do we need your labor? Do we need your effort? Like there's so much to do and not enough people. That is changing. Technology changes that equation, right? I am a technologist. I want a future where robots are doing everything. I don't want to push back against technological progress simply because we think it's morally correct that people sweat and labor all day. I'm also not arguing that if there's work to be done, that we should create systems. Oh, did I just lose you? Oh, lost you for two seconds there. Okay. You're back. Um, I'm also not arguing that like, if there's nothing to be done, that we create systems that uh, incentivize um, you know, not doing stuff, which is what we do today, right? The actual mm -hmm, system mm -hmm. today is like, if you don't do anything, you know, the government will take care of you. I think that is a horrible mistake because there's plenty to do. But I'm looking forward here. I'm not talking about the current society. What I'm saying is that technological innovation is exponential and that we are entering a period of human history where I don't think there's going to be enough to do to keep people sweating and digging holes all day unless we just dig holes to fill them back up again. So we have to start thinking about what that means for the average person, especially a person who does not have the skills required for the modern society, right? Like a vast number of jobs into the future are going to be programming. <laughs> this is a terrifying thought, by the way, and I'm going to bring it up right now. If you want to dig in, we can. Let's go. We have spent the last two decades or more, really, building massive, critical digital infrastructure for this world. So much of this world operates on digital infrastructure now, and it happened overnight. Your insurance company, your bank, the government, they all, everything is digital now. The, the United States government might be one of the last things to still be doing paper, right? And we all bitch about it. We're like, why the hell can't I just file this thing electronically? Why am I filling out a piece of paper? Why am I doing this? Um, and you know, they're just slow and incompetent is the answer, but everything else has moved to digital and there is not nearly enough people with the skill sets and competencies to maintain that infrastructure. Okay. Every mom and pop shop and pizza store under the sun went digital. They all have apps. They all have websites. They all have this and that and that their entire economy is built on top of digital infrastructure. And most developers, people who learn how to program and are developers, are working on new stuff that's being built. Nobody wants to maintain some old shitty software that was written in the early 2000s in C, but our entire economy depends on that software being maintained. There's a big disaster coming, something that most people have not thought about. Like there is a massive, massive shortage of skilled developers to maintain critical infrastructure. It's like bridges falling apart, but no engineers to fix them. <laughs> like bridges are going to start collapsing. When you go to buy your plane tickets, it's going to fail. And then you're going to be like, what the fuck? I need to fly out tomorrow and I can't buy this ticket. And then you're going to call the airline. You're going to get a bot that's just like, I'm broken too. Fuck you and hang up on uh, you. And like, nothing feels is going like that to way work. already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying is that we're already witnessing the atrophy 
of these digital systems and there's nobody around to build them. So this is counter to my point I was making before, which is that there's nothing for anyone to do. There's right. plenty for people to do, but there's very few people with the skills to do it. So what do you do with everyone else? Do you just, again, tell them to dig holes and fill them back up? Or do you come up with some creative new model of economics in general? Do you de devise, I shouldn't say model of economics. It's the productization of information. We are entering the information age and you as a human being can produce information. That's basically the highest level thing that I'm saying. I'm not smart enough to actually solve this at the granular detail. I'm just saying that information has value and you mm. produce information. Maybe we should try to find a way for you to monetize that value that you are producing just by eating, sleeping, and breathing and being alive. And right. if we go on a Bitcoin standard, it might only be worth this much, but this much might be all you need <laughs> to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you, you really brought it home in the end in that critical uh, observation that information is increasingly valuable. In fact, the world we engage in is increasingly based on information and will continue to be, it seems, and that we all produce information of some kind, right? The quality of information varies and, you know, the context in which it's used and all that kind of stuff. But I do think those two things are true. My responses to that, and I largely agree with this. And again, we're, we're just kind of having fun speculating because mm -hmm. who the hell are we to figure this out and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right now? But um, one, I think... It seems to me that no matter what kind of technological prowess we achieve or even abundance, like we're just, we always move the goalposts, right? That's humanity. It's like, well, we want rocket ships or now we want warp speed and now we want wormhole travel. And like we're, we live, if we truly live in an infinite, infinite universe, I think we'll always just push out the bounds of, of oh, yeah. our aspirations and our ambitions, you know? And, and so the, I think, I don't think we'll ever get bored. I think even when we're met with abundance, we'll say, well, things could be even more abundant. Or, or even we'll find another, I mean, I suspect we'll continue to, to look at technology as a, one of the, the primary forms of progress. But I do think in this era where people are less stolen from, the imbalances of power and, and wealth are diminished, uh, more people are stable and secure economically, and therefore they're able to engage in, in work that they find more meaningful, and therefore they're capable of building lives with more meaning imbued in them, be they family or creative pursuits or what have you. I think we'll also start to broaden or, or change the notion of progress. Like, what is it we're really after here? Do we just want a flatter, bigger TV screen? Do we just want, you know, a better rocket ship? I mean, I think this is representative actually in the Bitcoin community as early as it is where, you know, we live in, we're nestled within fiat culture, let's say, where, you know, the, the aspiration is the mansion and the Lambo and the Louis Vuitton bags and all that kind of stuff. And here we have uh, an emerging culture, a group of people. And again, I'm, of course, I'm generalizing, but who are more well capitalized than the average person. You know, generally speaking, if you've been in Bitcoin for a few years, you know, current bear market notwithstanding, perhaps. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like these pe people, Bitcoiners are accumulating Bitcoin, they're saving Bitcoin, they're hodling, all this kind of stuff. At, at some point in the future, if, if we're right about this thesis, they will be certainly more well capitalized than the average, but it seems to be that their aspirations for themselves, for their wealth, are less and less material and more and more immaterial, more and more, you know, about health and relationships and impact and meaning and, and creativity of different forms. And it's not so much the, the typical trappings of wealth that, you know, this, this culture has, let's say, inculcated in people. And so 
it'll be interesting to see when we have greater abundance, when we have greater fairness systemically, how the notion of progress, how, how the notion of what we should be aiming for is changed. And I think we're in for that. Like, I, I don't, again, I, I think technology will be a part of it, but perhaps just relatively as a result of those less material things being elevated in meaning, everything else will be somewhat uh, demoted. And perhaps that'll be a good thing. I, I completely agree. And I'll expand on it because, because, you know, I never said what somebody would do with the other 70 hours a week, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if they were working three hours a week to pay for their basic needs or working zero hours a week and selling their data to the grid to pay for their basic needs. What I'm talking about is providing a baseline. And I'm not even talking about providing a baseline. That's the wrong way to speak about it. What I'm saying is that as a, the world moves onto a Bitcoin standard and as technology improves, I just think this is how it's going to end up. You're going mm -hmm. to end up with a paradigm where individuals need to expend very little energy or sell very little data, or maybe not very little data, even all their data, in order to provide a baseline of their needs, right? Food, mm -hmm. shelter, water. Like, I think that that is what's going to happen. Here's what I think the consequences of that are. I don't think that you end up with a bunch of slugs on couches watching Netflix all day. Mm -hmm. That isn't human nature. That's sickness, okay? What, what we have today is a sick society. And I don't mean like sadistic I, I, or anything like that. I just mean like mentally ill, like we have an epidemic of mental illness. And even people who are largely functioning have are ill, if you, especially if you think of ill in the sense of like, I have a cold, right? Like I'm not saying the phrase mental illness as some sort of like deep insult into the person. I was raised by a therapist, okay? So like I, I grew up self-analyzing and talking about my feelings. And, you know, I view mental illness as like getting a cold, like I'm mentally ill this week. I'm not feeling well. My emotions are out of whack. Let me go get healthy and do some proper thinking and get some sleep. And maybe I'll be mentally healthy again. Right? right. So what I'm saying is that the vast majority of people, especially in Western first world society right now are ill. We are ill. And we're ill because of our environment, okay? The environment is sickening. <laughs> it's really unbearable, okay? Like the whole political, economic, social media, it's all trash. And we're eating trash too. And everyone is sick. That isn't how children are. I have a one-year-old. She's not ill at all. <laughs> People become this way. They're not born this way, right? Like we, we, we live in a poisoned world right now. So I think that hand-in-hand with the movement onto a Bitcoin standard and the increase in uh, technological productivity and lowered cost of living, I believe that along with that, a lot of this fiat culture will also die off and you will end up then with a much healthier society. What happens when you have an entire society of healthy individuals with nothing but time on their hands? <laughs> the stars happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we don't need to make people work. Human beings are naturally creative and productive. Like you said, like it, we always want more. We're always moving the goalpost, but I don't view we as the society. I think individuals do that on a case by case basis. Every individual mm -hmm. has aspirations, hopes, dreams, goals, ambitions. They're creative. They're hardworking if they're healthy. And so, and again, a lot of the reason that people aren't healthy 
I shouldn't say a lot of, at least a major contributor, is because of their jobs and shit like that. It's because of the economic situation that they're in, that they're Mm -hmm. busting their ass in a two-income family where their kid's going off to fiat daycare and they're busting their ass and barely able to pay their rent. That is depressing. That is mm-hmm. that is unbearable, you know? And if we can break free of this and get people healthy again, I can't wait to see what they do. I can't wait to see what the person who's working 70 hours a week in a dead-end job, barely scraping by to pay rent, does when they don't have to do that. I'm excited mm-hmm. to see the art that they create, to mm-hmm. the ideas that they come up with, you know? And so I'm talking about unleashing <laughs> human productivity and capacity by implementing an economic model that doesn't require us to work as slaves. Totally. A hundred percent agree. And again, I, I do think if you're looking for an initial cohort to see what that looks like, I think it is Bitcoin. It. Cause, cause <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, as, as you see, like, you know, Bitcoiners are being unleashed, being set free as they have more economic uh, stability and they, have, they have a more strong fa- economic foundation. Then they start to say, you know what? I'm quitting my fiat job. I don't work, I want to work at a, at a Bitcoin company. I want to contribute to Bitcoin or I want to, you know, spend more time on my art. Like they're doing all the things that you just articulated. And of course it's super early, right? It's a, it's a relatively small group of people, but I, it's so consi- I, I observe it so consistently. I've got to think there's something to it. You know, that, that when people gain access to that degree of freedom and they kind of change their perspective on things and they do all the things that you just mentioned where they, they start to look in, around their life and they see the representations or the effects of having been in that former system for so long. And they try to, they try to re-understand how things are and how they could be. And then they make all those small incremental changes or big changes in their life, you know, Mm -hmm. to tweak, Oh, I was eating horrible food or I was, you know, engaging this, these bad behaviors, my relationships were poor. They, they, they start to try to fix all this kind of stuff and then ask themselves the question is what do I find valuable? What, you know, what, what do I find meaningful? What Mm -hmm. do I want to devote myself to now that I have an enhanced degree of freedom? And the more and more people that feel that, I think, you know, that's how we get to the place that you just described. You know, it's, it's not going to be from on high. Hey, everybody, like now everything's different. Every single individual taking the responsibility to, you know, buy and custody their Bitcoin, you know, custody their own data, engage in the sovereign computing revolution. Like these are the things that bestow that degree of freedom so that then you have the availability to look out on the world and say, what's most meaningful, what's most valuable, and how do I want to engage my resources to, or how do I want to use my resources to engage it? And I think that's what we're all working for, because that sounds a hell of a lot better than what we have now. Yeah, no, it's, this is a grassroots movement. Uh, it's not coming from on high. In fact, on high is going to do everything they can to stop this. I do think that ultimately they will be powerless to stop it, but they will cause some turmoil in the meantime. So we need to be careful uh, and not be reckless in our, you know, um, in our ways. Um, we don't want people to fall through the cracks and get hurt in the transition. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, this is a grassroots movement. You know what's so exciting to me? When why I'm most optimistic about the fact that this is going to work is because, as I mentioned earlier, the primary tool for affecting change, large-scale, meaningful political change, is not Ron Paul, right? Ron Paul is a hero, but he couldn't do it. That You can't beat them at their own game. Uh, the way to do it is Ayn Rand's solution, strike. 
remove, opt out, remove your productive energy and capacity and value from the system and starve it out. Traditionally, if you go on strike, right? When I say the word going on strike, everyone is going to think of a worker's strike where, you know, people at a business get together, company- You're asking for something. Yeah. They say, they say, we're not going to work and we'll see who can last longer. Can you last without the workers or can we last without our paychecks? In other words, Mm -hmm. both sides are being hurt by the strike. The person who's going on strike is in deep pain because they don't have any income and the business is in pain. Essentially, it's not good for anybody, which is why they come together, cut a deal and move forward. For the first time ever, going on strike benefits you. (laughs) You can't lose. There's no way that's going to lose. If you go on strike against the fiat monetary system, what happens to you? You get wealthy, (laughs) right? Like like go (laughs) buy Bitcoin get out of dollars, maybe not over the last few months, but so far, striking has been personally selfishly beneficial. Mm. So it's like the most effective strike in human history because it's like to your benefit to strike. You don't have to outlast the employer or the the company or the government. You just have to go mind your own fucking business. Just go, Mm -hmm. go mind your own business. And you starve them out and yet you're benefiting the whole time. And the same thing is true. And this is a nice way to maybe bring it back to start nine a little bit. Same thing mm-hmm. is true with our product. When people buy an embassy or install embassy OS for free on their own hardware, cause you don't have to do business with us to use our technology. They are benefiting. They are going on strike against Google and Apple and Microsoft and Facebook and all the other data tyrants out there and against government surveillance and invasion of privacy and rising extortionary costs. They're going on strike against all of that. They're just like, get me out of here. This thing is sick. I want out. They're not suffering except maybe a little bit inconvenience. Oh no, you have to like open this other screen and type something in. You know what I mean? There's like this minor inconvenience associated with going on strike against big data, but it is massively beneficial to you to do it. It's not like you're suffering by going on strike. It's not like you're missing out on data and communications and finances. In fact, you're getting them without surveillance and invasion of privacy and cost. You're getting them for free. There's these huge benefits to going on strike, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what we try to convince people of now. That's what the point we're trying to make is like by Taking custody of your own, by owning Bitcoin and taking custody of it, by owning a personal server and running your own software, you are starving out the thing that you hate most while simultaneously benefiting yourself and your loved ones. It's a win-win. It's not expensive. It's not nearly as hard as you think it is. And you're saving the, you're ensuring the freedom of your great-grandchildren. Like, like you, you owe it to yourself and to everyone else <laughs> to stop depending on government and big tech for your basic needs, such as money and data. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And it's, you are striking, but you know, you're opting out. You're not feeding something that you don't agree with in whatever way, shape or form, even if you don't so, you know, hate them. And you're opting in to something that is almost certainly more in line with your values and your principles and your best interests, and as you said, the best interests of your descendants, because it means more wealth for yourself. It means more freedom for yourself. It means greater capacity to, you know, maneuver through the world freely. Yeah. And 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 most people, you know, I well, I should be careful how I, if I, I should be careful with the word most because 
uh, a lot of people don't yet see the value in this type of approach, but I think more and more will. And I think that's indeed one of the benefits of all of us who attempt or are making attempts to opt into that system is that if, if there's going to be any sales pitch whatsoever, it's going to be in our own results, both as individuals and as, you know, whatever cultural community is it, we're participating in. Like if, if we truly are wealthier, more stable, more successful, happier, healthier families, you know, more invigorated, energized, dedicated to things of greater meaning in our lives, like all of that will show if we're right. And I think that will be the, the largest sales pitch to, to anyone else because using, you know, this type of terminology will be, and the way we've been characterizing this, uh, I don't think many people will be receptive to it. You know, at, at, we started this conversation by saying in this day and age, if you say, you know, privacy is a, a big issue for you, a lot of people, maybe, you know, probably more than half of people in the world will suspect you are doing something wrong and therefore you want to hide it. And so that kind of persuasive, uh, approach may not be great, but this is why, you know, I, I commend you so much is because you're building the tools that allow all of us to opt in to a different system and then experience the benefit of that and then show the benefit of that in our own life. And I think that's the most powerful way to, to, you know, convince people over the course of time, however long it takes. That's the key there. It's time. This isn't, mm. this isn't some flash in the pan, big marketing thing where it's just the same as it was before, but with different paint, you know? Um, no, we're, we're doing something radically different and that doesn't happen overnight. And it requires real boots on the ground, word of mouth, organic growth. Okay. Like we, our strategy has always been at least a decade. Like I do not think about Start9 or the technologies and products that we are building as being any kind of traditional Silicon Valley success story type of thing. Like we're a totally mm -hmm. different kind of company, a totally different animal. We are thinking very long term. We're super bootstrapped even today after raising some money. Like I'm, I'm planning for the long term here. We're not just like spending more and more money. And as part of our growth strategy, we needed to make sure that we were reaching out to a market or audience that was ready for us and that we were ready for. It needed to be a good fit, okay? Which is why our first market, the people that we were like, that's who we need and who need us was Bitcoiners. And I use that term, you know, appropriately not the crypto industry, like Bitcoiners, mm -hmm. the ones who understand the political, economic, and technological ramifications of Bitcoin and its um, you know, al alternatives to Bitcoin and why they're different and why those differences are important. We knew that that group would get it. They would understand us. And while they may not even be aware of what we were doing at first, like we are in part educating Bitcoiners and saying, look, you've taken the orange pill, check out the red pill. <laughs> like, like, like it's going to make sense to you, right? We are a funnel to Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a funnel to us. It is a symbiotic mm -hmm. relationship. Um, the technology that we are building and the team at Start9 are very symbiotic with the Bitcoin uh, technology and community. And we ourselves are Bitcoiners. Um, but at the same time, we can't stop there. We have to grow beyond the Bitcoin community. And even better, we have to expand 
the Bitcoin community. <laughs> so Bitcoin is sort of growing its awareness and reach in the world. And we are growing our awareness and reach in the world. But I don't know if they're going to go hand in hand, right? There's like this entire group of people out there. And I'll roughly put them in the bucket of, you know, um, anarchists, libertarians, and even some misguided conservatives or something where, or quite frankly, even on the liberal side too, they hate tech, right? So liberals hate big tech and conservatives hate big government. We're like, boy, do we have something for each of you? You, know, like, you just can't say one to the other, right? If I'm talking to a liberal, right, right. I'm just like, Facebook big is tech. spying on you <laughs> and you need this. And then if I'm talking to a conservative, I'm like, the government is surveilling you. Um, but again, it's like everyone ultimately can get on board with this, but we are not ready for them yet. And they're not ready for us yet. So what we are doing next year, part of our growth strategy for 2023 is to begin going on to more of the like libertarian and anarchist uh, kind of podcast circles and getting into conferences that are not Bitcoin conferences. Like, and I think what's going to end up happening is we are going to end up orange pilling a ton of people because we're going to go mm -hmm. there and we're not even going to say the word Bitcoin to them. Right. We're just going to be like, hey, your text messages are going through a signal server right now. Right. You're using signal and you think you're being private, but it's actually bouncing through a signal server. Plus, you have no idea what code they're running on that server. Just because signal source code is open source doesn't mean they're actually running that source code. They could be running anything they want and you have no way of verifying or validating what they're running. So you're being incredibly risky and walking right into a net and you actually think you're being private, but you're just walking into a net that was designed for you to walk into. Use our system and you can do private messaging that is verifiably, provably private and anonymous between you and the person you're talking to. I don't even have to say the word Bitcoin. They adopt the technology and guess what the first thing they see when they go to the marketplace is? Bitcoin. And they go, wait a second, Bitcoin has something to do with this? And so similar to what we did with Bitcoiners where we're bringing them in and then going, oh, you should try messaging and data. <laughs> we can go to this other group of people who care about messaging and data and be like, you should try Bitcoin. And bring these two worlds together because they really, you know, from the meme, like the two hands, like they're made for each other. These, you know, hardcore freedom advocates over here who have, quite frankly, in many cases, belittled Bitcoin. Right? A lot of them are gold bugs, golden guns, you know, and yeah. they need to understand that Bitcoin is real and viable and important. And I think that we can help with that uh, by bringing them in through a different door. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. Um, I've always been somewhat disappointed with the libertarian people um, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> <way> <laughs> their their approach just, I mean, they seem to get off on just getting together and espousing, you know, certain principles and oh, no, not having, yeah, right. And not yeah, having them, complaint. you know, coming. So as you said, they got their guns and you know, perhaps as a result of uh, Roger's involvement, there's a lot of uh, Bcash and Monero uh, people in that community. And uh, I don't know, they just, uh, they seem to miss the boat on Bitcoin and are content with, you know, uh, the bonfires and, and uh, yeah. talking about, you know, these principles and never really engaging in something that's going to actually affect the change that they, you know, they philosophically that they, they seem quite aligned with. Yeah, libertarians no, so. have been toothless for a long time. Yeah. Um, here's what I like, though. Suddenly, suddenly, there is something happening in American libertarianism. Okay, the the Mises caucus 
of the Libertarian Party has essentially taken over the party at their latest um, gathering, national gathering. The Mises Caucus took control of the party. And um, if you look at their social media, uh, you know, both the state by state libertarian headquarters and the libertarian national account, and especially the libertarian Mises Caucus account, they are spitting fire. A little okay. more spicy lately. <laughs> oh yeah, they've been spicy. <laughs> um, and and man, it's been a long time coming. And there are a lot of really pissed off libertarians right now, just people who feel totally disenfranchised, and they're just like, "We're not the party that like spits fire and bites and you know shoots back. We're the party that just complains a lot and tries to win over the hearts and minds of the American people." I'm like, no, no, no. Sometimes you got to get into the trench and fire back. Right? We're being attacked. Freedom is under attack, and the Libertarian Party has the right philosophy. It's time to back it up with some, some fire, and I'm very happy that they have. And so when I say we're going after Libertarians, I'm not talking about your traditional armchair Libertarians. I'm talking mm -hmm. about this new breed, this new fiery breed that's ready to punch back. We're going after them and saying you know this you can't have the world that you're trying to produce without individuals controlling information so long as information is under the control of a few entities um you're never going to to get the word out appropriately like you've got to put so i think that i think it's a match made in heaven so uh, i've been referring to them as pissed off libertarians and start nine are like Let's go. And that's our next target. So it was Bitcoiners, and now it's pissed off libertarians who are ready to do something about it. Well, I hope it goes well. Now <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's finish off with some kind of practical uses of this. So, because again, we've, we've, spoke, we've talked most about the kind of philosophical aspects of all this, but, and, I, and the pro is coming out, I guess, early next year, which is the next iteration of the, uh, the server, the computer that you guys produce with the embassy OS loaded on it. So let, let's put it this way. Let's say you're not a normie, but you're someone who's not super technical, but you understand that, you know, you want to be in control of your data. You want to be in control of your money. You're a Bitcoiner to some degree. Um, and you want to start opting out and you want to start opting into what we just described. You know, you want to be in, in more control. And so, for example, like, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to, you know, pay Apple a... Uh, 12 bucks a month for storage for all your photos. Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to pay Google for whatever? Wouldn't it be great if, you know, if whatever else you use, Dropbox or what have you, you didn't have to pay them. And not only would they not be able to snoop around on your stuff, but you, you, you now custody it. How much of a inconvenience in one's life would making a transition like that be? So I want, I want to ask a few opt out, opt in questions, but that's the first, like when, when you have your own personal server and you start to bring all that information back to you, you know, how tangly is that, is that change? Because people are so ingrained in the existing solutions, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, it's the level of effort, the barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you mentally prepare yourself for, I'm ready to do something. What does that mean? Like how much time yeah. and energy am I going to need to put into this? It's a great question. And one that is critical to anyone who actually pulls or doesn't pull the trigger on the change, right? Because it's the perception of difficulty that causes a lot of people to, to halt and delay and procrastinate. Um, the good news is, the best news, <laughs> is that it's not all or nothing. 
you need to be patient with yourself and with the world and realize that you don't have to one day go from using all of these centralized services and custodying your data with everybody to being totally off the grid and totally sovereign the next week. That you mm. can gradually, over the course of years, move yourself and your loved ones off of the grid without losing any of the benefits of the grid, right? So not moving to the woods and abandoning technology, but using technology to the utmost, but without the involvement of third parties. That this can be done and should be done, I would argue, over the course of a couple of years. Like, I'm not exaggerating. We have people who really try to hit this hard. They get a server and they're like, okay, I'm installing this, I'm installing this, I'm installing this. And I'm like, you need to slow down. This is a whole new world. When your children grow up, they're going to be born into this world and they're just going to know how to do it. Just like kids today know how to use phones better than their parents. Right. Kids tomorrow are going to know how to use personal servers and self-hosting better than we do. But for everyone who's already accustomed to the centralized model of computing, it takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around what's happening and gain a basic literacy. It's not like going back to school either. It's not that hard. And our job as a company is to minimize the level of effort, to lower the barrier to entry, and streamline the adoption process of more and more um, you know, services, things that you can do on this uh, device and computing paradigm. But we're still early. And I don't want to mislead anybody and tell them that they can sort of just close their eyes click a button and all of their data and information problems will be magically solved. That isn't how this works. And it doesn't work like that with Bitcoin either. You've mm. got to put in the proof of work. You've got to take a moment to think, learn, and experiment with this technology. Now, on the other side of that, it's way easier than you think. <laughs> We've actually come a long way in the last three years. Start9 put our first product out into the world in February of 2020. So we're coming up on our three-year anniversary of our launch. It's been over three years since we've been in existence, but we've had a product selling globally for almost three years now. So we have a ton of market feedback. We've iterated an enormous amount since then, and the product is still in beta. We internally still view it as a beta product. But we're starting to see the horizon of coming out of beta. We believe that this thing is getting good enough. It's getting so good, and our standards are really high. We're not a bunch of amateurs. We have very high standards, and we are getting ready to say, this thing is ready for mass market. We think it's getting close. And so, yes, it's still in beta. Yes, it requires a little bit of an adventurous attitude, but most people the vast majority, if not everyone, I'm actually struggling to think of a single case contrary to this, almost everyone that has ever bought or implemented our technology has, and, and who we've heard from has expressed surprise on the side of ease of use. They have been like, wow, I didn't realize that this thing was that far along, that you guys had, that it actually works. I'm blown away that it actually works and how reliable it is too. Because um, that's where we've put most of our energies, right? We are primarily a team of engineers and, and product people. We are not very good at marketing. We are not um, you know, very good at many of the ancillary processes of business. I sort of try to hold all that down myself. The vast majority of the team is a bunch of like gritty technologists and we just build. So the dang thing works. It's not bug free. It's not perfect, but it really does work. Um, 
So here's what the sort of flow that we recommend. If you're into Bitcoin and you're into Lightning, which not all the people who buy our product are, then that's where you should start. You should definitely install a Bitcoin node and you should definitely install one or more Lightning nodes. So you could run LND, you could run CLN, or you could run both if you want on the same box. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you should start. Run Bitcoin and Lightning, start plugging your mobile wallets into your own node, right? Access your Lightning node from your phone, from anywhere in the world, do it over Tor, learn how it works, feel that power, that, that total end-to-end -end sovereignty of knowing that nobody on earth can stop you from doing what you want with your money and that it is safe. That's the first place. The second thing that we recommend, and actually the most popular service on our entire store, tied with Bitcoin, roughly, is Vault Warden, which is password management. If there's anything that you as an individual are determined to do to increase your level of privacy, security, and sovereignty in the digital world, it's run a password manager, and more precisely, self-host your own password manager. Because using something like LastPass or OnePass is better than not using a password manager, but self-hosting your own password manager on your own server and accessing it over Tor sounds a little scary. It's easy. It's the one thing my wife uses. <laughs> That's it. That's all she uses. <laughs> she doesn't understand any of this shit, but she uses a self-hosted password manager running on her own embassy such that she can go around the internet in her browser and autofill usernames and passwords that are 30 characters long, super complex passwords, such that if anyone ever became compromised, the rest of her digital life would be shored up. And all of them are encrypted and being physically stored on a device in her room and served to her from anywhere in the world over an encrypted and anonymous overlay network called Tor. It's like mm -hmm. the ultimate of digital security. And there's a feeling that comes along with that, that many have expressed to us of like sleeping peacefully. There's this idea where it's like, I'm not going to get hacked. It's just a nice feeling to know <laughs> that like you're not going to wake up one morning and all of your digital accounts have been compromised. It's just not going to happen to you if you are using a password manager in the appropriate manner. Now, if you're an idiot and you you let somebody fish you for your main password and 2FA secret or something like that, then nobody can help you. You know, you're, you, you, we can't save you They're from lost yourself. Cause. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's it. So Bitcoin... Lightning Vault Warden is like the starter kit, and everyone can do that within a week or two. From there, you get to play and learn over however much time you need. And so, I mean, would this be, will, will you be able to host websites, blogs, things like that on a personal server like this? And will it have, I mean, what kind of bandwidth limitations are there depending on how many visitors you get? Not, like, is this where this is going? Is this where this currently is? It's where it is. We, we have um, almost every corner of com computer applications covered at this point. There's social media, there's data storage, there's blogging, publishing, uh, chat messaging, group messaging, like it's all there already. Mm -hmm. um, it's all going to continue getting better. There will be more and more options of ways to do these things. Just like there's multiple chat apps on the app store, there will be multiple messaging protocols and nodes on our marketplace. 
Um, but almost everything that you could want to do with a computer today is already available on Embassy OS, with the exception of like what we're doing right now. There, there is no video streaming or audio streaming uh, services yet. And the reason for that is because remote access to the device and any service running on the device is done over Tor. And Tor is just no notoriously slow and of late it has been unreliable because the network itself has been under attack. So mm -hmm. when you're home, when you're at home, connected to the same local area network as your embassy, you use it and all of its services over the local area network. Like you're not going to the internet at all. You could literally unplug your modem <laughs> and just have your router on and you could, you and your family could chat and video stream and all the stuff you want on the device at home. But the second you leave the house, the only way that you or anybody else could access the blog, for instance, so say you're, you want to run a self-hosted blog and serve it to the world, um, all of those people would be visiting that site on tour, right. which we know is not viable for mass market, right? It was a great way to start because it is easy, private, anonymous, secure, it just works, um, and it's a great fallback as a like deterrent for censorship on a normal website, right? So like, for instance, if you had a blog on your embassy serving at a clear net domain, like johnvallis.com, and you were saying things that were undesirable and you, know, you were going to get censored, you would be far less likely to get censored if the censor understood that by censoring you, all they would do is push your blog over to Tor and you'd go dark, you'd go underground. Because it makes them look like fools. Hey, we censored him. And then you just laugh and go, no, you didn't. <laughs> Everyone, you can view my website at this onion URL, and they can't take that down. You can't block an onion URL. So anyway, um, so here's what's coming. Not only will you be able to do all the things that you just mentioned, like host your personal company or organizational website, blogs, live podcasting, uh, video streaming for sats, like I'm streaming video and money's coming in live, right? And I'm doing it anonymously from like in a totally censorship resistant anonymous way. Um, That's what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, this is, this is the power. This is really where we get content creators and organizations coming on board, um, which is what we need for to spread the word, right? Um, not only is all that coming, but it is coming in a way that is incredibly reliable and fast. So right now you have Tor, which is slow and unreliable, and that's the only way that you can externally serve things that are running on your server. 2023, as I have been messaging it around here in the office, like literally writing it in places, and like this is it, 2023 at Start9 is the year of networking. I don't mean networking like shaking hands and meeting new people. I mean like networking strategies, network protocol strategies. So I talked about this at the Atlanta Bitcoin conference um, at length, uh, getting down to particular networking strategies that we are going to be pursuing. I won't do that detail right now, but I'll give you the sort of TLDR in less than 60 seconds, which is basically that we are going to be implementing a variety of different networking protocols and strategies under the hood for your embassy experience, such that you as an individual don't really need to understand any of this or understand how it's all working. Your embassy will utilize a combination of local area network, Tor, 
Um, hole punching strategies, which always involve some sort of third-party discovery server. There's multiple examples of these, things like Noster, SyncThing, uh, Impervious, uh, Synonym. Like There's a bunch of these things coming online right now, and they're all essentially doing something very, very similar, which is called uh, port prediction as a uh, means of, of hole punching. And TLDR again, that means a server is sitting somewhere else, and it, it maintains ephemeral IP and port information about devices that are behind NATs, such that device A and device B can sort of discover each other and communicate with each other in a private, anonymous, and censorship-resistant way, so long as the number of third-party discovery servers, relay servers, are decentralized and self-hostable, like so that mm -hmm. it's a robust network such that I'm not dependent on a single one, because then that single one knows sort of everything I'm doing. So mm -hmm. um, we are going to help build this ecosystem out. We will be sort of partnering with uh, some and not others, depending on our own assessment of their technology and progress, to implement onto Embassy OS. In addition to that, we will be implementing traditional ClearNet support, meaning you will be able to access your Embassy dashboard or any service that you choose, it's not all or nothing. It's not like you have to opt in or opt out to this in a binary way. You can choose to run 20 different services on your embassy and then go, you know what? Ghost, which is our self-hosted blogging platform. Are you familiar with Ghost at all? Yeah, it's, I yeah, haven't so, used it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Great. So, so Ghost is already available on, on the marketplace. You can already do it, except it's served over Tor. But let's say you're a blogger and you want people to access your blog at a normal website for normies, right? Myblog.com. Um, you can, in the very near future, probably Q1 of next year, so this is coming first, before all the other stuff I just described, you will be able to go get your domain, assuming you don't already have it, right? You get johnballas.com. And then you'll register that domain with your embassy dashboard, which is super simple. It basically will require you to copy a single auth string from your domain registrar, say Namecheap or GoDaddy or wherever you got the domain. You will copy a single string, go over to your embassy dashboard and paste it in and hit save. That's it. That's all you'll have to do. And now your embassy will be able to serve one or more services on either that domain or any subdomain of that domain. So for instance, your blog could be blog.johnvallis.com. And your Bitcoin store, where you sell t-shirts and whatever else, would be store.johnvallis.com. Mm -hmm. And all of this would be served from BTC Pay and Ghost running on your embassy, in your home, on johnvallis.com for the whole world to consume. And the setup process is copy, paste, button, button, done. And you'll be up and running. And bandwidth, from a bandwidth and performance standpoint, the bandwidth is entirely going to be determined by your internet speed and uh, internet reliability. Like, do you have good internet or not is going to determine the bandwidth. And in terms of processing power and RAM usage and stuff like that, uh, it can handle a lot, especially something like the Embassy Pro. So if you're a content creator or a business and you're planning on like, you know, servicing thousands of people, uh, or if you're a church and you want like everyone to create accounts on the device so that they can all communicate with each other, you're going to need something like the Embassy Pro. The mm. little Raspberry Pi Embassy One isn't going to cut it, right? The Embassy One is a very solid device. Mine's been running solid for years, and we recommend it absolutely to individuals or small families 
who want to take personal control over their, their data and communications. If you're a content creator or a business or an organization, and you plan to be sharing that device with hundreds of people or serving content from that device to thousands or even millions of people, um, you definitely need a much more powerful computer. And so you should get something like the Embassy Pro. I'm personally going to run an Embassy Pro, even though I'm not serving thousands of people or sharing my device, just because I want the rocket ship. <laughs> right. Of course. I'm only going to drive be. 10 miles an hour with it, you know? All right. All right. La last, uh, last question, and then we'll shut it down. But, um, you know, in, in Bitcoin, you often hear the term, and it's been kind of a trope for many years, like banking the unbanked, right? And then that kind of morphed into unbanking the banked, right? Yeah. And this is the opt, this is the opt out or opt in sort of approach. And um, I think it, it seems like something so similar is going to happen with sovereign computing, where people are kind of waking up to the fact that they've just been so captured for so long. And they're like, look, you know, I want to un-Google myself. I want to un-Apple myself. De-Google. You know, I, I, yeah, exactly. I want to take, you know, I, I want to take back more control. And it, it, you know, it's super exciting. Again, I know very little about this stuff, but over the last few days, prepping for this and looking into your guys' work, I mean, it's, it's just exciting that a solution seems to be a bit available now or increasingly available that's uh, usable by pretty much anyone, right? You, as you said, you, you know, you, you don't want to take bite off too much at the beginning, but it's very easy to, you know, plug in a box, basically, you know, plug in a little mini computer and start interacting with the services that are available. The question is, um, aside from, you know, getting a, a embassy or embassy pro, what are other things that really stand out for, to you in terms of digital hygiene, if we can call it that, that people with that type of, you know, uh, plan or, or orientation in mind where they want to reduce, you know, the degree to which their data is being leaked and, and used for whatever purposes, where are some other places they should be looking aside from all the, you know, awesome stuff that what you guys are working on can facilitate? Um, so, man, there, there isn't a lot. Um, you know, there are different strategies people have used to be more private on the internet, like running privacy oriented browsers, um, using VPNs, um, you know, running pixels that run Calyx or Graphene instead of stock Android. These are all fine. They're all valid strategies that we would recommend, especially the last one that I just said which is running like a de-Googled phone, which I don't do right now because like many things in this space, it had always felt like a big leap. And I use my phone so much in such a critical way all day long that I need it to work more mm. than I need the benefits of de-Googling my phone. I will get right. there. Also, these things are getting better. Calyx and Graphene are getting better and better. And I think they're getting to the point, based on my own conversations with people who use them, that they can now be your daily drivers, that you can actually use them in the same way that you would use a stock Android phone and not really experience any degradation of uh, performance or experience. So that's a big one uh, that I myself need to get on uh, with soon. Um, you know, running a privacy browser, absolutely. Like, run, don't run Chrome. Um, you know, use Firefox and, uh, or Brave, even though Brave has gone down some interesting paths of late that I disagree with their, you know, their 
yeah, anyway, I, I don't, Brave is okay right now, but th they're shit coining and they're doing some weird shit. And so, um, I don't really trust it, but you know, Firefox and, and yeah, turn on some basic sane security and privacy, uh, configurations. Um, in terms of VPNs, I'm not as big of a fan. And part of the reason for that, um, is because all you're doing is swapping out, uh, one, third party that knows things about you for a different one, right? When you use a VPN, like you're, you're just relaying all your communications through that VPN. So it's, they know everything about you as opposed to the websites that you're visiting. So it really depends on your threat model and who you're trying to obfuscate your information from. Mm -hmm. uh, like if you don't want Facebook or Instagram or Dropbox or whatever website you're using, if you don't want them to know, your IP, then you should use a VPN. But then you're giving your VPN everything about you, <laughs> right? Whereas before it's like, okay, Facebook knows this about me. They know this about me. They know this about me. But Dropbox and Facebook aren't necessarily sharing data with each other, right? So they don't have a total profile of me. Dropbox knows that I'm using Dropbox. Facebook knows that I'm using Facebook, but Facebook doesn't know that I'm using Dropbox necessarily. There might be cookies that are being shared in the browser, but again, if you're using good browser privacy settings, then, then they don't. But if you use a VPN, the VPN knows everything about you. <laughs> they, they have this total profile of all the different sites that you're using, um, which might be fine, right? Again, you might not care, but you just should be aware that it's a trade-off. It's VPNs mm -hmm. are not like some magic pill that solve all your privacy and internet problems. They're just centralizing your internet activity. Um, and so if they're compromised or, you know, uh, incompetent, then that could be exposed. Um, but anyway, um, so no, there really isn't a whole lot. Um, every opportunity that you have, you should probably not enter the correct information. Like if some website is asking for your mother's maiden name or your uh, favorite pizza, like, and they clearly don't need it to provide the service that they're providing, just put in gibberish, tell them that your favorite pizza is coffee or something <laughs> like that and move on, you know? Um, right. And that's just more trolling than anything. That's not really going to serve you well. It's just more just like, don't, like, just, just flood the system with bullshit information just to make their lives, you know, miserable and gives you a little emotional gratification at least. <laughs> right. So... The big, the big one is taking back control of your digital life by hosting and serving things yourself. Self-hosting compared to everything else that I just said is like the sledgehammer to all of those little pinpricks, right? Like it really is the way like self-hosting is how we take, how you as an individual and we as a society take back the power in an information war is to remove our information from the system and put it onto our own devices in our own homes and to communicate with one another over encrypted private channels, not through central pipes. That's it. Mm -hmm. And again, until now, that was really hard. Like there was a good reason that people didn't do it is because what I just said was basically impossible for anyone to do who wasn't super technical or rich and had a lot of time on their hands. That's why we exist is we're trying to take that highly esoteric, difficult, time consuming, uh, process and, and, um, you know, goal 
and lower the, the barrier to entry, lower the level of effort um, and make it possible for everyone else. Um, and again, we have a long way to go still. We've, we're further yeah. than you think, but we have a long way to go. Right. Well, man, I love uh, that ambition and the work that you guys have been doing. It's super bullish on you know what we've been discussing here. And I look forward to seeing how it progresses. Is there anything you wanted to get off your chest or shill or anything else before we shut it down? No, but if you're interested in learning more, uh, Start9Labs is our Twitter handle. Start9.com is the entry point to the rabbit hole. Um, I've been on a few different podcasts. Check them out. On Twitter, I'm underscore Matt Hill underscore. Um, and uh, we have a really thriving community in both Telegram and Matrix. Uh, very welcoming, very helpful. You are not alone. You are not on your own. If you choose to go down these paths, you're not confined to documentation and tinkering on your own. Jump in the channel, ask a question, and many people will simultaneously jump to try to help you. Um, it is an incredible community, and it's um, growing quite quickly at this point. So come join us. I love to hear it. Well, man, uh, thank you for to you and the team for doing what I think is in incredibly important work with this. And uh, I look forward, I hope hopefully the launch of the Embassy Pro goes well. Uh, looking forward to hearing feedback about that. And uh, we'll have to do this again in six to 12 months and get an update on things because I'm sure you guys will have a lot to uh, report on then. Yeah, thanks. Really appreciate the platform. Thanks for having me on. We need this. All right, brother. Take care. Cool. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Matt. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at underscore Matt Hill underscore and visit start9, S-T-A-R-T, the number 9.com to learn more about their awesome work. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop and we'll see you next time.